This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. My name is Sarah Tutton and I'm Senior Curator here at ACME. I am moderating the conversation this afternoon, which is called VR, Hype, Hope or Just Hard. Um, what we're going to do is have two presentations um, and then we're going to have a conversation. The conversation is going to be between us on stage and between you people out there. So I think what we'll do is get the microphones roving out there after the presentations and we can all do it together. Um, I should give you a bit of background about ACME's relationship to VR. It's been quite a long relationship. Um, I work in exhibitions and my relationship with VR has actually been over probably the last two years. But our public programs team and our education team have been engaging with VR with students for quite a long time and making some really interesting work. For us in exhibitions, it's really been about commissioning work and presenting work in the last few years, some of which we will talk about today um, and some of which has actually been in collaboration with our second speaker, T. Um, But we can talk about that as things get going. So, some introductions. Our first speaker, and I'm going to read these bios out, um, is Nils Pakel, who is from, or his title is a Digital Experience Manager at Auckland War Memorial Museum, where he is working both on permanent gallery development and temporary exhibitions. He consults with teams across the organisation, um, working on a range of different, often storytelling VR experiences. He is the resident futurist and has been driving the digital R&D program at Auckland Museum over the last few years. Our second speaker is T Uglo, who is based in Sydney. T has worked at Google for nearly 10 years, starting Google's Creative Lab in Europe, and since 2012, being a Creative Lab for the Asia-Pacific region in Sydney, Australia. She works with cultural organisations and practitioners to enable artists, writers and performers to look at new ways in which we can use digital technology to augment traditional art, theatre and music. And T is one of the few people in this conference who has actually participated in making work. So I think that's interesting and I think it would be nice in this conversation this afternoon to talk about it, not just about presenting VR works in the museum context, but also making and commissioning works for that context. Okay. So we hope to be a little bit controversial, to look um, both, I suppose, at the hype and the reality of VR, and I'm hoping that these two presentations draw us that out a little bit, and we can talk about that. So over to you, Niels. Right. Kia ora, everyone. Thank you for the introductions. Um, okay, so I'm going to, I thought of this maybe giving a bit of a, a, a primer on VR, where, where we are at Auckland Museum, um, and where the kind of the thinking is that, that is informing some of the stuff that we do and um, I'm mostly going to be talking about VR and if I say VR that's um, either real-time rendered experiences using game engines or uh, which can be interactive or non-interactive or um, linear 360 video experiences so this is uh, basically the two types that we're dealing with Um, we also have been doing quite some interesting work in the sort of AR and MR space augmented reality and mixed reality space which I'm mostly going to be skipping over in the slide just to kind of keep it a bit confined but happy to talk about that more on the panel so um, 
as you might have noticed, VR has had a bit of a moment lately. Um, that very seductive illusion, as John put it earlier today, uh, has generated quite a bit of hype. And um, let's talk about that. So 2016 was dubbed the year of VR, and, and it, it you know, generated an incredible amount of, of uh, public interest and um, media coverage. And that was mainly fueled by the release of, of a range of uh, VR-capable um, devices to retailers for everyone to buy, first as development kits and then as, as a thing that anyone who had enough cash could buy. And what we see now is that there is a market with multiple competitors emerging and a lot of business sectors are really pushing into VR from all sorts of directions and wanting to, to um, get a piece of the pie. And um, we can see that nicely uh, demonstrated in this um, Google Trends, search trends graph over the last couple of years and you can clearly see that huge spike there which um, coincides with the release of said devices. Um, also do note that the curve is going down, which is an interesting thing to, to bear in, in mind for, for later. Um, unfortunately, the, the uh, Google search trends doesn't go back further than five years, but if it would, uh, we would see additional smaller spikes in the past where VR had a cautious attempt to, to get somewhere. And um, I believe this time around is a bit different from, from those attempts in the past uh, because the, the technology is increasingly catching up with the vision. So we're getting more powerful computers and um, overcoming some of the teething problems of, of the, the head-mounted devices, the, the goggles, and the, the things are becoming a bit more affordable. And I think anyone here who has tried one of those, those um, current generation devices will agree that they're actually, they are pretty, pretty amazing and the resolution and the responsiveness is really impressive. Now, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the, um, the emerging tech hype cycle. I love this. <laughs> Basically what it does is takes the current buzzwords every year and uh, maps them across a number of, of phases that they all go through. So it starts with an innovation trigger and then we're all hitting that peak of inflated expectations which gets us right up there to the top and then all the way down into the trough of disillusionment Wake, making our way up the slope of enlightenment until we, we finally reach that plateau of productivity. Um, and in 2016, Gartner predicted that mainstream adoption of VR and AR is around about five to ten years away. So that's kind of where that is. Once we've, we've uh, made our way up the slope of enlightenment, uh, everybody thinks it's a good idea and they all start using it. Um, so what, what does this mean? Um, and I think, you know, to, to, to get a better idea of, of what mainstream adoption can look like, I'm not saying it's the same for this, but I think it's, it's uh, you know, interesting to look at smartphone penetration today. And a recent poll suggested that this year, 92% of New Zealand adults, I live in New Zealand, um, will have a smartphone, 92%. So as I said, I don't expect that you know in five to ten years everyone's going to wear um, head-mounted devices. Maybe they will. Um, but what we do know is that a lot of people will be using these sorts of devices on a daily basis for stuff that we probably don't have any idea of today. And that begs the question what that means for us as museums and for the world that we live in. I mean, I hope it's not going to come to that vision that, that we saw earlier um, from... Um, 
Keiichi Matsuda that that uh, shows a an overly saturated augmented ro uh, uh, world. It's a beautiful piece of, of, of work if you want to check it out. Um, but I think it is safe to assume that's a bold assumption. I'm going to be throwing a few bold assumptions around. This is one of them. Um, that wearables are the new frontier of BYOD. So assuming that a lot of people will be carrying these devices with them. It means that with a caveat, sorry, that there is always going to be a digital divide and that's always going to be an issue. So not everyone is actually going to be able to afford these sorts of devices. But um, it begs the question how ready museums are for these really truly disruptive shifts in visitor behavior and, and expectations, demands, changes in learning models um, that come with a, with a generation that is growing up and, uh, with this technology. And you know, just ask yourself the question, if someone would come to your um, institution with a HoloLens on their head today, what sort of services would you be able to provide, should you be able to, uh, to provide for them to have an experience or none is a perfectly viable answer. Um, but also consider that today we're developing new permanent galleries with a you know, development life cycle of maybe two to five uh, years of planning. And then they have a lifespan of 10 plus years. Uh, does that mean that we have to front foot the trend here, or uh, is it just a big fad? I think if we do accept that um, AR and VR or 3D-based experiences are an additional endpoint in the future, whatever that looks like, it means that we need to start planning for it today. Um, at the same time, we mustn't be starry-eyed about the whole thing. I mean, the, the, that old mantra of don't use tech for tech's sake obviously applies to this as well. And it will quickly lose its wow factor as it becomes a mature product. So we need to think about what we're left with beyond the hype and focus on that and trying to, to um, eventuate that. And I think that's a, that's a nice segue to some of the hopes that I think are um, associated with this tech. Uh, from a museum perspective. Um, so why are we, we museum folks, interested in, in virtual reality in the first place? And I mean, I'm talking about this, I'm, I'm always very mindful that, we, that we're still riding on that peak of, of inflated expectations. Um, I certainly am, I admit to that. Um, but I think there's a reason for it and there's a promise in it. And um, the reason is that, that VR, or the, the hope is that VR will become an equal tool in our holistic storytelling and educational toolbox alongside our objects, our labels, our kiosks, etc. all telling that one story or even enabling entirely new ways of storytelling using those unique traits that VR brings to the table that we can't do with any other forms of interpret at this point in time. And um, there's a few examples for those. I mean, the, the biggest one is um, this ability to convey a, a true first-person view, this, this idea of, of empathy machines, really um, being able to place people in a different uh, person's point of view. And um, one of the, the, the most haunting examples that I've come across is this, um, this app by The Guardian and Amnesty International was released um, early last year, I think. Um, and it places users inside a 
um, solitary confinement cell to invoke that feeling of being locked up inside there. And I can tell you it's a, it's a very haunting and scary uh, experience because you, you are sitting there and it's very tight and you, you imagine yourself, oh God, this is not good. I don't want to spend you know, years in the cell. And that's an effect that is very hard to convey in any other way. Um, secondly, VR enables full immersion. So the ability to take visitors to a different time or to a different place. And uh, this is a beautiful example from um, Stanford Uni where they're placing the user, or, you know, the user takes the perspective of a coral to feel what ocean acidification looks like through um, the perspective of a coral reef. And that's quite, uh, quite interesting. And um, another trait that comes with VR is the, the ability to overcome physical constraints um, of our galleries. So, so being able to, to show objects at scale or bringing them to life within context, um, placing them within a context. And I just I love this, this um, example from um, Google Arts and Culture where um, they've remodeled a museum space as it is, um, as a 3D model. And as you put on your, your um, goggles, the, the space fills with water and the skeleton on the wall comes to life, floats away, and then eventually comes back, eyes you out and scares you a bit. Um, and that's, that's an amazing experience. And it's a great example for, for how I think how, how VR can work inside a gallery environment where um, it really extends the spatial experience that, that people already have, the visitors have. And then, of course, there's also the, the promise in there, that, or the threat, that it overcomes the physical constraints of our buildings as such. Because, of course, you don't have to be in the museum. You don't have to be in that gallery to have that experience. Anyone can download that and, and check it out on their phones. Um, again, just something to be mindful of and something we can talk about. One thing, though, is very, uh, is, is very uh, clear to us that at least at our museums, uh, in the two times that we've that we've had major installations of, of VR, is that visitors love it. They love it. Um, and we have some hard numbers on that that support that. So it's you know all all sort of fears aside. Obviously, there's something in there that was, there's a need there that that um, we can we can service, and um, we're still yet to find out whether that is still the, the the lure of the technology as such, or whether it's it's the the added experience that this this enables. Now, I think also as museum people, we are attracted to VR as as, as it actually utilizes some of the core disciplines that we stand for uh, as museums and are really good at. So there's obviously the, the content side of, side of it, the objects. Um, there's the curation, curation of these objects and the storytelling using, using these objects and um, our ability to design experiences. So there's actually quite a bit of overlap in terms of um, um, the things that we do. And uh, consequently, a lot of museums, including ours, are experimenting with this stuff, and we're all learning as we go. And uh, frankly, I think as we all follow that, that slope of enlightenment, um, there is a lot of experimentation going on everywhere, really, which is not limited to our sector. And that's because it's new to us, to most of us, anyway. 
And it ain't always easy. And that kind of brings me to the hardships. Uh, basically, there are two dimensions to this. There is the, uh, the visitor experience, the experiential side of it. Uh, and then there's the stuff that needs to happen behind the scenes to enable those experiences. And um, I want you to meet Steve. This is Steve, a very approachable guy, actually. He's our ICT infrastructure manager. But sometimes he hates my guts. Basically, every time I wave that VR flag in his face, and for a reason, because he's worried about super bespoke content that is stored in a compiled app, which is very difficult to maintain over time, to tweak, to debug. It's basically, once, once it's deployed, it's a black box. Uh, it's very expensive to put on the floor because it needs high-end gaming computers and it needs one computer per headset and um, high-end graphics cards and so forth. So one of those, those computers can easily you know, clock on that sort of three, four grand each plus the headset on top of it. Um, and it doesn't scale. It's very hard to integrate. So there's, there's no remote device management that maybe checks whether those, those goggles still work because they notoriously break down. I'll get to that. Um, there's no central content management system for VR experiences yet where I can say if I roll this out across the entire museum and I have one VR experience in that gallery and one there and one there, there's no central way for, for anyone to, to manage that content yet. And then sometimes his buddies from the AV and display team um, join him in hating my guts and that's because uh, the hardware doesn't stack up. It's, it's very delicate and laborious to maintain and to keep going. I mean, this pile of junk that you're looking at there is, is a result of only a couple of weeks on the floor with normal sort of visitor use. So we, you know, we had in this one gallery, we had four um, units with the VR and we churned through uh, 15 headsets, I think. Um, and then kind of started to piecemeal them together and using the bits that still worked and kind of soldered them together and stuff because it was becoming unaffordable. Um, so... That's a big consideration. And then moving on to the, to the uh, experiential side of it, um, the exhibition developers have concerns as well because VR is very much still considered to be a single user experience and, and probably is in many cases. So there are clever ways around, around that and we can, again, we can talk about those, those later on. Uh, usually these experiences are still tethered, so there is a cable attached to the goggle that goes into the computer, which means that people have to be seated. Plus, it works best in an empty room. But then, if you look at this, which one of these two looks more like a museum environment to you? <laughs> Probably the right one. And that's from um, the Oculus Rift uh, health and safety requirements, right? So that tells a story. Um, so that means that, that VR comes with some really hard sort of spatial requirements. You don't want any objects or cases to bump into. You need to be able to install sensors uh, that track the head movement of the devices which um, notoriously bad at, at uh, playing nice together if you have more than one headset in a room. That's what we found anyway. And um, then there's the, the general fear that visitors may struggle. This is just one of many, many poor souls on YouTube that, that um, are filmed having their first VR experience. <laughs> so I, I really feel sorry for her. Hey, um, 
But so there, there's things like sim sickness, this idea of, of coming off the boat and getting really sick, um, and disorientation, like we just seen there. Um, there there's um, a really interesting phenomenon, phenomenon that um, I didn't realize was a problem until it, it happened, uh, and VMR showed that, that it was an issue. It's this idea of, of being disconnected uh, from your physical body as you are immersed in the virtual. So, you don't, so you're looking around the virtual world, but you don't see your own body and you don't know what's going on around you, and that apparently creates anxiety um, in some visitors because there is a, as a disconnect between your, your um, physical body and your sensory experience, your visual experience. And then, of course, uh, hygiene. Um, so this is, uh, this is lint, hair and, and skin particles and grease and all that stuff that built up over um, just a few weeks as well, even though you know, we had visitor hosts cleaning these things. But it's, it's stuff that just goes into those little cracks and, and crevices that you can't clean that easily or visitor hosts at some point just kind of brush over. So would you want any of this anywhere near your eyes or your visitor's eyes? Probably not. And I'm completely, I was grossed out taking this photo because I had to touch these things. <laughs> and they don't get better over time, you know. Um, and then, I mean, health and safety in, in general is a concern. Uh, so the headsets themselves come with a whole raft of warnings uh, from the manufacturer, which can sound pretty grave if you look at them. Um, luckily, in those two installations that we had and any of the piloting stuff that we did, None of our visitors experienced any of these things, so we had no interferences with uh, pacemakers or anything like that. Thank goodness. Um, but I think it should nevertheless be considered a risk and it be added to your, to your risk, risk uh, register when, when you plan for using it. But all those things aside, I think um, I have a few hunches of, of where it might go and why it might still be good to be interested in it. So let's assume one of those bold assumptions again that AR, VR is, is here to stay and it will grow. That means we need to, to embrace it. If it's an unstoppable force, we need to roll with it. Um, we need to try with it, we need to play with it, we need to evangelize it internally, create an awareness, and be in that space and be part of that conversation because we don't really know where, where it's going. So I think it's important to position ourselves as a contributor in that space because it can lead to some amazing projects. Um, and uh, HoloLens, uh, the Holocano project is one of those, is an example for one of those, where we um, just kind of were in that space, went to those events and, and talked to startups and stuff, and came to develop a, a HoloLens app, our first HoloLens app, which um, will literally augment our music, our educational programming around um, volcanoes. Um, so you can place a virtual volcano on a desk and lava will come out and it will flow down the desk and flow on the floor and then you can change the viscosity and the pressure of the, the volcano and it does stuff. Um, watch the space because it's not done yet. So my advice is to get in there and experiment and plan for that, that um, mainstream adoption, really. Get a kit, at least a gear or a cardboard. They're very, very um, cheap to get and just start playing with it and see what comes out of it and, and be able to talk that talk to be, to be ready for that discussion. Uh, and ultimately, because um, this is a conference about risk, is VR going to kill museums? Tentative no. <laughs> I don't think so. But I think 
another way of looking at it is, is um, a core discipline, if our core discipline of, of our people is to curate objects and tell stories to them, maybe we are the ideal people to create VR experiences. Maybe in a not too distant future, there's a job of a VR exhibition developer or VR curator on the horizon, which would certainly be preferable from a conservation point of view, and probably also better paid. Thank you. I'm going to try the roaming mic. Um, it's been a very long day, hasn't it? I, I do really appreciate you all staying. Um, it has been a day of full of information um, and thoughts and stuff to think about. I'm also, it's very nice, it, 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 you know, Sarah pointed out that I, I, I'm a maker. Um, um, I'm also um, corporate, and I think I'm only one of two sort of um, speakers who are outside of institutional, um, institutional and uh, sort of organizational kind of museum making. And I'm quite a long way outside of that. But I'm also quite a long way outside of Google. So you'll be glad to know that I'm not actually here to talk about Google or, or, or what Google does or how Google should do it. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about um, a few of the projects that I've worked on um, and how they interact with museums and very much um, sort of... I'd like to actually just play a counterpoint to Neil's. <laughs> so we'll see, all right? You can tell me whether, whether, whether I hit an effective counterpoint. Um, so I'm, when I have to come into the country, I have to write down what I do, and I have to say that I'm a designer for Google. And um, that's about as designy as I get. Um, <laughs> I, I, I draw whiteboards, and, um, and then I find very talented people. And um, <laughs> I ask them to make them into things. Um, and it, one of the greatest problems I have is being asked what I do for Google. And the second greatest problem I have is being asked why I'm allowed to do that. Um, <laughs> So along with um, whiteboards, I tend to do, um, I talk a lot. So I have a little um, quite well-watched talk about um, uh, physicality and, and digital and how we can hide digital in, in the world we live in, even sort of as, as we move through. And I'll show a couple of examples of that. Um, and a little book about um, what we don't know and how valuable that is. And um, of course, I now... <laughs> Increasingly, um, something of a spokesman for um, trans rights because I'm transgender. And um, if you hadn't noticed that, it's probably time to shut the laptop. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but mainly I do this. I take artists and writers and people who dream and create, the people that um, make the art that we end up archiving, documenting, recording, presenting in this extraordinary array of ways that, that you've all been speaking about today and which has been so fascinating. I mean, it is so fascinating to listen to this discussion which starts, what is a museum? Um, because I'm there thinking, what is art? <laughs> um, what is culture? What are plays? What are literature? What is these things and how does 
the technology affected. So over the last oh, nearly 10 years, I have been playing with these ideas in this space. Um, and I'm not going to talk to any of those, but there are a lot. Um, <laughs> one of the very first projects we did was a very little experiment, which really came from um, a completely crazy girl called Clara in Madrid. And she wanted to use Google Earth to zoom right down on top of the Prado and go into the Prado. So then you could look around the Prado whilst you're inside the Prado and see all of the art. And we thought this was a completely bonkers idea. And we did an experiment on the internet, which you can still find, actually. Um, so that's 2007, 2008. Street View then came along. It became valuable for Google to play with this idea. Um, a group of people, we have this thing called 20% Project. They, they turned it into the very first art project, which involved talking a lot to a lot of museums who thought it was a bad idea as well. Um, that then turned into a cultural institute, and that has recently turned into um, arts and culture, which we just saw this extraordinary example from. It is very much more about this idea of archiving, documenting. It is more the anachronistic idea of perhaps of what a museum is online. Um, I don't really do that. <laughs> and so I sit slightly again outside of that space in that I'm working with curators to create curators. Um, creators to create um, the, the kind of work that we can do. This is the nearest project that I have to a kind of classic museum project. We did a, a year-long um, exhibition at the Science Museum, which was really about this idea of whether it is possible to touch the internet. How do we turn the internet into a very physical experience that people can physically examine and, and, and get into? But this is the title. <laughs> um, and my answer is kind of like, yes. <laughs> um, Charlie, oh, it's actually the same illustration um, as you saw in the animated GIF, but Charlie Melcher, uh, uh, who runs the future storytelling, in, you know, has this lovely line, which is good VR is not cheap, and cheap VR is not good. <laughs> um, and um, the article is probably worth reading. I can't say I've read it. But I really like the quote. Um, <laughs> and... Um, what it speaks to me about is this obsession with VR um, as, a, as a technical experience at the moment. Because it is. We're very obsessed with the technical side of this. And everything we've just been talking about has been very technical. It's all been about headsets and things. Um, and all of these things, virtual reality, augmented reality, mixed reality, non-linear reality, and just like normal reality, <laughs> they're all reality. You can take a shed load of drugs, it's still reality. <laughs> I was saying to someone earlier, once you've had a baby, that is still reality, but believe me, it is a very different reality. So with that in mind, I'm going to show you a performance, that we, a play that we created with Sandpit and Grumpy Sailor, who you may have heard about, who work with um, National State Library, and are one of those small teams that are doing these extraordinary sort of work, and they've come out of my laboratory. I'm going to show you a, a short film, which is a couple of minutes long, because there's no way to explain it. And then um, we will see, and then you can tell me sort of what sort of reality that is. How could it be gone? Stand 
central idea of the project that I think we all got really excited by was what if, as an audience member, you had the ability to be able to read the thoughts of the performers that you would be watching? And that became a really compelling conceit for us. Relax your face, it's showing on your face. Your forehead is all screwed up. Relax your forehead, relax your... Just breathe. We put together a workshop to discuss ways in which we can produce a play that has digital at its core, but doesn't feel that it's led by a device or a screen. We created a number of prototypes using the gyroscope and the accelerometer and trying to get that down to a really narrow focus while playing synced audio tracks simultaneously. Technology has always been coming in and making important changes ever since the time of Shakespeare. And I think it's very interesting to see the areas in which we can use the technology that we know about, which is digital technology and information, to allow other theatre makers to understand what is possible. Okay, so that was me as a boy, by the way, just in case. <laughs> um, now, um, that, was, that experience was, uh, was augmented reality. It's certainly you're in that reality. There's no, I mean, there's no virtual reality. You're not wearing a virtual reality machine. Um, we're allowing the sound to be both ambient and, and directed. There's a lot of different kinds of ways in which we're playing with the technology. Um, and, but because we filmed it in 360, and it is a 360 experience, even though you have several different narratives moving around, um, it felt... Actually, frankly, with Katrina and Seb's support, um, it was possible to turn that into a VR experience. And we did turn it into a VR experience, and we brought it um, down to Acme. And um, I think we can say it was very successful. Um, you know, um, I don't know if any of you got to see it. Um, <laughs> I didn't get to see it. Um, one of the things that was very important about it, which was actually came from Katrina, was that it had to have, still needed to be a, an experience, a theatrical experience. It needed to be experiential rather than simply sitting on a stool and being taken somewhere. And I think that's a very important part of when we do do those kind of VR things. And here's the thing about reality. There's lots of different aspects to it. It is not just visual. It is not called visual reality. The virtual reality is obsessed with the visual, despite the fact that even with visual reality, you still don't, you don't even get a, like a 180. I don't know what, the, what your kind of like range of vision is, but you certainly have no idea what's going on behind you. Um, um, all reality, on the other hand, is 360. Um, all reality is very, very interesting indeed. Physical reality is quite fascinating. Um, location or orientation are like the really key things which have come up again and again and again as people try and work out what happens when they are in your spaces and you want to give them personalized experiences which are variegated and can and can lead people down the sort of paths and the sort of routes and tell them the sort of stories and narratives that make the work that they're looking at interesting. 
One of the real challenges is actually location and orientation. Not just where they are, <laughs> but which direction they're looking in. Um, so I was just a bit of history. Like I, my, a long time ago, I did a play with RSC, which I think was mixed reality because it happened in, across three days in real time and, and was also on the internet as, a, as another reality. There was a reality of the play that we did through social media. Um, but I don't think anyone thought up mixed reality at the time, so it was just a bit weird. Um, and then here's another project that we end up bringing down to... Um, um, Acme, and, and I like to show this video because it's very, very early days. This is basically, there was a phone in that cardboard box. We're using the gyroscope in the phone to control um, a video, a cube, an HTML cube, which has six videos playing on either side, and those videos synchronize the sound so that I as you move it through space. space. <laughs> but, but James thinks it's magic. <laughs> because that idea of having a physical object even though you actually know that there's a phone in there, even, even with that knowledge, the idea of having a physical object that somehow has this synchronicity of, of physical experience, it, it turned out to be really rather remarkable. Um, and then we took that to various different places and various different content, and it was not a platform, and the world was not ready for it. If you think about it in a weird way, it's basically virtual reality, but wrapped around the wrong way. So, like, you still can't see what's behind you, it's just it's behind you on a cube. Um, and you still have this fear of missing out because you don't know, and you still have this problem where the users are in control of what they're looking at. So if they're really looking in the wrong direction, they're really looking in the wrong direction, and you can't do anything about that if what the action is happening behind them. Um, and so as you see, um, we brought it to Acme for White Knight, and it was very popular, and that made me very, very happy indeed. Um, and as you see, like, Actually, with a lot of VR stuff at the moment, there's this. Well, what's happening is we're trying to build these old anachronistic models in. We're basically trying to to direct your attention so that you are always looking. We are going to move you so that you are always looking. But what we're really doing is moving that little square box that we're so used to using around you, rather than this idea of having a three a, a, a physical or virtual experience. This is a project that I really like. It came up, um, it was basically a wand. It was basically this location tracking thing. It was basically this idea that as you move through space, you have, um, you are, um, we know where you are. <laughs> we, and, and we have a device that is not a computer. It's a wand, it's a stick. It guides you with haptics or, or and then it, it talks to you. Um, and it was a, it was a failure. Um, and I like to talk about my failures because it was too expensive. I mean, there was the amount of money that we spent working out what we were doing, um, and that's a sunk cost. That's something that I have to take on the chin. And then there's this understanding that you actually get to that point, you're like, it's going to cost a lot to put on every single time we want to do it. We can't. And then you have to do this awful thing of, of, of cutting the string and going, mm, no. And we went back to the drawing board a little bit. And the next time we, um, and this is sort of what we're working on right at the moment. The next time we've been looking at this idea of like, how do we give people this, this, this layering of reality, this opportunity to have alternative versions of stories, of narratives within their physical space, the opportunity to take all this extraordinary information and, you know, going right back to what Elaine said, like the opportunity to bring the stories that, um, that people want to pursue into the experience that they're in rather than a didactic or, or, or linear, um, linear-led story. And um, we ended up with this little 
um, with this little project called XWiFi, and we're using it for lots of different ways. So effectively what it does, and this is using a screen, admittedly, like basically it takes the fact that you've got your gyroscope, you've got your, everyone's got their computer in their pocket, like, and if you point it, rather than it being a phone, you just turn it into a magic sort of pointy thing. And then as long as you're pointing at the right thing, then that thing can happen. And if you've got your headphones on, or if you've got your wireless headphones on, which is even better, then you have your own personalized experience, which means that lots of people can join in. And if you want to keep it, then you can keep it and drag it. This is one version of um, how this works. Um, the really interesting problem, um, so the point is, is that I'm not pointing at a screen. <laughs> The phone doesn't, there's no real connection. It just uses Wi-Fi, so it just uses captive portal and some very old technology, so it works on all the phones, and a, a web page, basically, and your touch. Um, and it, um, it isn't pointing at anything. It's just starting from zero. So wherever you start pointing at, that is zero, zero. And then you have 360 degrees. Except you don't have 360 degrees. You've got, like, however many degrees there are in a sphere. <laughs> which is a lot. <laughs> they're called steridians or something, and it gets quite complicated with the maths. But um, and, and very, very geeky. And this little GIF is just a couple of people um, using it to paint on um, a very, very small um, mock-up. I'm not sure why we made the mock-up quite so small. But um, that could be the size of a shop window, I think, was the original idea. Um, you are just really giving people an opportunity to, to switch something. Whether you want to project what it is that they're switching is neither here nor there. It may as well be a light switch. You can be turning a light switch on, or you can be turning on some audio, or you can be um, um, channeling um, a, a different path because you have your computer in front of you. So if you are actually really at a very top surface level, you're not terribly interested in this, you can keep that at a top surface level. and it, and and we can begin to give people that layering of, of information. And the main reason I'm working on it is because it's sort of cheap. <laughs> I'm increasingly frustrated by technology which wants us to do this layering of, of, of complexity, but um, at extraordinary kind of technical cost. Um, and it is, like, digital is ephemeral. It's going to go. People turn servers off. Everyone thinks it's forever, and it just isn't. Um, so <laughs> we, have an, we have an activation of this, which launches tomorrow. And I just left this in here because <laughs> up until half an hour ago, I was going to go, yeah, so um, <laughs> we're doing a project, another project down in Adelaide. Um, it launches tomorrow, if you happen to live in Adelaide. Um, it's on for six weeks as part of the Fringe. It has five, um, five screens in which you move around the space and you are able to use your phone to control who's, which side of the story you want to watch. So it's basically sort of an Annie Hall-ish sort of thing. It's all very farcical and comedic about a couple who fail to fall in love over a long period of time. Um, and um, as you can see, we've still got that, that, that very kind of experiential thing. You are in and doing something because we've discovered that actually if you just put stuff somewhere, everyone just walks straight past it. But if you give them something to do, then they're right on point and they'll queue up. Um, there are many different kinds of reality and when we begin this journey into VR, virtual reality, 
That is about taking a layer of the virtual and bringing it to people. It doesn't necessarily need to be this close to their face. Thank you very much. I wanted to ask you both a question to start off with, which is something that, as a curator working with this kind of work, we struggle with quite a lot. And that's about putting something in a museum or a gallery which is a quite isolated, singular experience. Whereas a lot of what we talk about, about making shows, is that it's something which is a social, interactive experience. But we're asking people to come into a gallery and be alone and it's an experience that they could have alone somewhere else. And I think Ghost Toast is a really fantastic example of something that actually you couldn't the way we presented it here was very much it was an experience for two people and the converse here we are. Thank you. The experience was completed in a way when you came out of the work and you spoke to the person that you had seen it with. But I think that, that that's a quite choreographed experience in a museum or a gallery. So I just wanted to throw that to you both about that the isolation of it versus the shared experience and how we think about it. There have been a couple of examples today of, of people talking about um, shared experience, especially with audio. Kia was talking about how effective it is when everyone is following the same audio because it creates com a, a communal sense. Personally, I'm very keen on the idea of ambient, allow it, speakers that allow you to hear, but are also off the ear so that you get ambient sound because ambient sound is just as essential to, to as, as directed sound. Um, and this project, yes, we, we don't, it's very complicated, but basically there are two separate narratives going on for the two, two participants. One is, a, one is Steve and one is Maud. Um, so it's actually only when you come out, ideally, that you then talk to each other about your experience and you realize that actually you have basically watched a slightly different play. You've got half the story. You've got and half the story. And it's when you speak to the other person that you understand this sort of tragedy that's happened in this yeah. relationship, which is a, a sort of misunderstanding in a way. Yeah, we never, we don't flag it up. It happens or it doesn't happen, which is an artist's indulgence, I think. Certainly, probably not something you were doing, but it, it is a very effective way of, of of making it a personal experience. Totally. I mean, it was for me. It was quite. I'd been working with Dan on how we would present it, and I hadn't had an opportunity to watch it beforehand. And I went to see it with Katrina, and it was really the conversation that we had walking back to our offices, where I went, "Oh, that's what it's about." Mm. <laughs> and that was really lovely because often, Which is you great, know, because that's what we would like. That, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But, I mean, you don't know that the people will have that conversation. No. No, you and don't. Then, you know, and we showed another work, which I think... I'm pretty sure Jess, who may well be in the audience, said that she, she took... Who came to see it in Adelaide, they went to a bar and spent two hours talking to a complete stranger. Yeah. Um, <laughs> see, that's even better. Yeah. <laughs> but you can't choreograph that and you shouldn't choreograph that. And that is the slight difference between art and... Um, I think, I mean, well, this is the thing. That's the thing like, that I think would be interesting came back to, to the start. How didactic should this be? How, how instructive should it be? How layered should this be? I mean, I think there is ways how you can turn it into a more social experience. Yes, the, the, the actual visual experience is, is singular in, in, in that sense that, that only that person who wears that, that headset 
can look around in 3D. But um, what we've discovered coincidentally, um, as per usual with this sort of stuff, <laughs> um, is that um, we were we had con so we had a, um, an experience on the floor where people could um, navigate freely in an open kind of sandbox world and fly around and, and explore it. Um, and we were worried, or the exhibition developers were worried about um, parents being worried about not seeing what their kids are doing while they are flying around in that world. Uh, so we, what we did is we put a tethered screen next to it so that everyone could see what they're doing. And um, another thing that we didn't expect or didn't anticipate was that, okay, we, we gave them a joystick, like a little hacked modded thing, that they could fly around with, but of course they couldn't see that in VR because they had the goggles on their head, right? Um, and then what happened is that groups would um, assemble around this little unit, this little station there, and they would fly each other through it. So somebody would take the controls and, and see, and then and then say, oh yeah, go a bit high, go a bit high, oh let's, let's fly in that tunnel there. And they could even relay some of, so we had, had beautiful um, conversations happening between, you know, intergenerational conversations happening between um, kids explaining the technology to their their um, parents as their parents flew them through the thing and the parents could relay the content that um, you know the stuff that they were seeing on the screen back to the the labels and, and the interp that we had on the walls but the, which the kids likely didn't interact with right so it became a you know unwantingly so or unexpectedly so it became a social experience for small groups and you know, you'd get groups of five or six kids screaming together, oh, go, go up, oh, drop them, drop them, drop them in the water, <laughs> and then they would fall down. Um, so, so there's ways around that, mm. I think. Is it, we did a work um, called Stuck in the Middle with You, which Gideon Abazanek and Matt Bates did. Which, this is an image of what you would see inside the headset. But it had a performative element like that. We created a stage where people would walk up there was actually a ballet bar behind them and they would lean against that, put their headset on and then they would enter the world of the Sydney Theatre Company and the Sydney Dance Company. And there's a moment, I won't ruin it too much because I think you can actually go and see it in screen worlds at the moment, but there's a moment where you realise that everybody's looking at you. And in a way they are because we had set up sort of chairs like this in front of the stage where you were doing it. So there was a kind of really fun interactive laughing at your friends part of it um because you do always look dorky with those you do when you, and you're doing these <laughs> yeah. dances you're being asked to i think the thing that was interesting about that was that people totally loved it and like a lot of this work people flocked to it and it was great it would be very hard to have that set up over a long amount of time so it's very much a festival content Kind of why work. do you think that museums are going to be in a place where they have the content to export, to publish, to people's living rooms, where they are willing to have those experiences? And that's going to be very powerful. But I'm not, as we, yeah. I think we've all talked about, like the actual technical, logistical and um, experiential experience of coming into a, a social environment filled with objects. I mean, there's a, there's a real reason why the physicality of this space is much more... Um, powerful than us just being on a screen talking to you from wherever we were, which would have saved on some airfares, by the way. Um, but we are here, not because you wouldn't be able to see us or hear us, but because there is there is uh, 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 something that 
that means that we had this with the art project. Like, convincing galleries that actually taking incredibly high-res versions of their paintings and, and putting them on the internet took quite a lot of bravery because they genuinely believed that people then wouldn't want to come and see the works. Whereas what happened was people desperately wanted to come and see the works. Um, so I do think that as this is rather interesting thing. It's like as a publisher of um, curated experiences, I think museums are in a very, very strong position for yeah. the VR thing. But as a, as a, as a kind of um, having manifestations, which is where we are right now, I'm not so I know, sure. I mean, for me, the exciting thing is that we're actively commissioning work which we don't know how or where we'll show it. And that's not something that you usually get to do as a curator. No. That's and I think that that's, you know, really exciting. When we're talking to artists about the kind of works that we want to make with them, I don't have to say things like that's going to be in Gallery 2 between the 2nd of August and the whatever. I'm not having that type of conversation. So it's a new type of conversation that I'm having with artists about making work. Yeah, and I think and that, that's, that's great. That sort of openness to 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 that mm. sort of conversation in the first place, I think, is is what we need to do at this point in time. You know, to mm. to, to just be open to whatever mm. this, this leads to, and even if that's nothing, you know, yeah, totally. Even if it's a fad, and then at least yeah. we've we've you know we've oh, we've, well, we've been involved been on the in that experimentation. <laughs> you will be learning. There are valuable things that happen. An awful lot of the the, the information, a lot of the things you learn through. The reason I always stick up something which went disastrously wrong is because. That's basically normally what leads us into our next stage. And, and the, the working with the, the institutions that I've been lucky enough to work with, um, the, that ability to take a chance on something that m might not work out, works out <laughs> in the end. <laughs> Maybe not with that one, but it's not, that's, it's progress. It is a progressive stance rather than a kind of like, bastion stance of like this is what culture is and this is how we present it and this is how it is done that's what this entire day appears to have been about and it's been very interesting for me we haven't got much time left do people have questions yes do we have microphones that i'm going to just put another picture up of something we've shown this is lynette paul with collisions oh do we have to pass it thank you it's all right T. oh wait oh we're going to T's doing it uh, thank you. Um, I just wanted to find out more about the like, commissioning work process. Yep. I didn't realise that that was something that um, was done. I just wanted to just get a bit more insight into that. Okay. Um, we have been commissioning work um, actually largely by theatre makers. So I think the Sandpit work yeah. and theatre work, I mean, it's very cross-disciplinary, but... Um, and the Stuck in the Middle with You had was made by a sort of dancer, choreographer, filmmaker collaboration. Um, what we've found that's been interesting about that is that people who are used to working on the stage have had a natural affinity to working in VR. Um, having said that, um, I don't know if people saw Jess Johnson's work, which was at the NGV last year. Um, Jess is a New Zealand artist, was living in Australia, is now living in New York. She very much comes from the visual arts world and for me that was one of the most successful VR works that I've seen. Um, we are, you know, I mean I think a lot of museums and galleries are interested in making work in this space and are having lots of conversations and developing work and commissioning work with people. Um, 
I think, you know, obviously Sundance have been doing that sort of in a very cross-disciplinary way as well through their New Frontiers program. In the gallery context, when audiences are being introduced to or experiencing virtual reality work, like, do we need to worry about physical space? I think we... I mean, look, it's hard... So, did everyone hear that question? The question was about the physical space that these works, particularly in a contemporary visual arts context, take. Look, I think... Although I think Ghost Toast is probably fits between visual arts, theatre, various things. I think that that was that was a work that resolved that incredibly well. Um, I think it is important. I think we're making exhibitions. Um, I don't know who managed to visit the Sydney Biennale this year, but there's work there, and the artist's name I'm going to forget um, about the um, um, about Japan, about the the, the nuclear sort of zone um and and that that where the actual headsets themselves had become um had been created into um objects and the first time i went on it on our kind of important tour we all didn't realize we were allowed to touch the things so they were presented as art objects and it, and you had to have an image today to come up and say no you're actually meant to put it on <laughs> and that was a very interesting challenge because we were in exactly that space it's like the, the curators had treated them like art objects. It felt like an art object moment, even though there were stools and and it was clearly meant for that. Um, so it can, and then sometimes like the Björk exhibition, it's just a bunch of headsets in a room, and sometimes it can't. Um, what's gonna be absolutely fascinating is how this stuff, as um, Neil said, is, is archived, because we've already lost two generations of digital art because museums in, and institutions have had no interest, I'm afraid, except perhaps maybe something in the lobby, um, in showing and preserving work. So um, it, it is, it is going to be really interesting to see whether this work will stay in that space, which is that it is, you know, on a, on a slightly consumerish base because it doesn't work within systems of galleries um, and own private ownership and, um, and organisational and institutional collections. Well, I think from a museum point of view, um, the the space is critical to 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 uh, you know museum experience, um, and I think that VR can be, as I said, you know, my talk can be can extend just the toolkit that that we use when we tell stories within our our buildings. I think it's important to to really honor the fact that we are a physical building and that we stand for for certain things, but um, at the same time, we can extend and, and add that additional layer of, of reality on top of those physical galleries, which is why I showed that, that um, example of that dinosaur there, that you, that you can do things in the physical space that we, that we can't physically do in the space, but we, you know, using this, this, this tool. But it's still important to be in that space. Does, does that make sense? Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. Now, thank you, everybody. Thank you, T. Thank you, Nils. You have been listening to an Acme podcast. For more recordings, go to soundcloud.com slash acmeonline or the Acme website. <laughs>